Time for another episode of A Call Away. Adam Giardino with you, broadcaster for the Yankees AAA affiliate, the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, and we begin our off-season coverage of the Yankees minor league system, off-season in the minor league sense. Of course, the New York Yankees knocking on the doorstep of the postseason, getting ready to begin their playoff push. Now, in the offseason here in the minor leagues, we are going to have a week-by-week conversation with the other voices in the system. You've heard from myself and Adam Marco all season long here in AAA, and we've been getting weekly updates from John Moses with the Double A Trenton Thunder, Nick Flamia with the High A Tampa Tarpons, and Single A with Matt Dean and the Charleston River Dogs. So we've been hearing from them every step of the way all season long, but here in the offseason, we're going to dedicate entire episodes to each of them and give them the airtime that they deserve to check in on what's happening down below because the New York Yankees, that top level of talent in the system from a couple of years ago, it has arrived. It's doing great. And really the question becomes, okay, in the next two or three years, what else is coming down the pike? And so stepping into the lower levels of the minor league system, well, that's going to give you a little bit of insight, some of the names that are coming your way up in the big leagues. This week's guest is coming off of the championship. He and I have been close friends for quite a while. John Moses and I broadcasted with the Trenton Thunder beginning in 2014. We spent four years together to 2017. And then when I took the job with Scranton Wilkes-Barre, John took over as the number one broadcaster for Trenton, and he's been their number one guy the last couple of years. Well, it culminated in a championship for the Thunder and for John this season, so those guys down in AA got to do a whole lot of celebrating. And for the players who have been there for a couple of years, it has to be so satisfying. Trenton's a team that makes the playoffs year in and year out in the Eastern League, making the championships a handful of times. But in the recent years, they hadn't been able to punch through for a title. But this year, their fourth title in franchise history, Eastern League champs, and not even a week removed from all of that pomp and circumstance, we had a chance to catch up with John and get his thoughts on the season. And without further ado, we will step aside for this conversation with the voice of the AA Trenton Thunder, it's John Moses. On the podcast this week is the voice of the Trenton Thunder, John Moses, for full transparency. John and I worked together for four seasons down in AA with the Trenton Thunder. It never culminated in a championship. It culminated in a couple of appearances in the championship series in the Eastern League, but never a championship this year, the Trenton Thunder AA Champions in the EL, knocking off the Bowie Bay Sox. And, John, first of all, welcome. And what was it like for the last couple of weeks making that run through the playoffs? Well, thank you for having me. First of all, it's a real pleasure to finally share the air with you again. Um, (laughs) It was sort of a strange way to finish the regular season because we knew that we would be playing Reading. Um, It was pretty clear that Reading was the other really good team in the Eastern Division this year. Um, and they actually finished with the league's best overall record, um, even though we managed to sneak in and win the first half, you know, with a terrific performance from Davey Garcia on the final day of the first half. Um, and then we go into Labor Day weekend, which sort of has become typical in the Eastern League schedule, where Reading finishes at Trenton for the final four days of the year. Um, and we play these four games, and we split them two and two, and we played close games. And, you know, as we started talking to each other around the press box and visiting with the Reading radio team, we're saying to each other, this is going to be a close series. Like, this is going to be really, you know, we, we seemingly had only played close games against each other the whole year. And then game one, Jordan Montgomery ends up coming out as a rehab starter for the Thunder, and Spencer Howard comes out and just absolutely deals against the Thunder in game one of that series. 
in our years working together at Double A, Adam, we saw some pretty incredible individual pitching performances, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. I've seen one better than what I saw in Game One of okay. that division series, where Howard struck out 12 in seven innings. He allowed one run. It was a sacrifice fly in the sixth inning, and I, I turned to my broadcast partner Spencer Smith in the fifth inning, and I said, "We might get no hit because Howard <laughs> just looked that good." The Thunder just managed to scratch out a run in the sixth inning. They were down three-one. And then put together an eighth inning against the bullpen. Um, you know, Jeff Singer, who's a South Jersey guy, came out and just and just wasn't sharp. And the Thunder took advantage and winning that first game and winning the game in the series started by Spencer Howard. I think really set the tone for the Thunder in their entire postseason. It made them say to themselves, it almost appeared as if the team was saying to themselves, "It doesn't matter who starts on the other side because we know we can beat one of the best guys in the league. So whoever goes out there tomorrow or the day after." we feel confident about what we bring to the plate. And then in game two, David Parkinson is just as good as Howard was. Not nearly as flashy. You know, he only struck out five, but you know, four base runners in seven innings. And it was another night where we we're saying to ourselves, gosh, where are the runs going to come from? And then you get into the 10th inning, it's a scoreless game, and Kyle Holder hits a solo home run, and just the whole energy of the series shifted into Trenton's favor. Um, when we were driving back that night, after game two to finish the final three games of the series at, at, the ball, at Arm and Hammer Park, um, we're saying to ourselves, we're playing with house money here. Redding has had the two best starting pitching performances in the series by a lot, and they lost both games. So I, I think from their perspective, I, you could understand how their, their will was probably a little bit beaten down, especially staring at Luis Severino starting in game three <laughs> on rehab. Um, and Tyro Estrada in the lineup as well, and then Dylan Batances coming out of the bullpen. Um, it, it just looked like a really hard task for Redding to sort of climb the mountain and come all the way back. So that game three turned out to be a laugher. You know, Trenton scored nine runs in the first three innings, and you know, it just it just sort of felt like something special was really brewing because we really felt like Redding was the other really good team in our league. Of course, besides Erie, who you know missed out on the playoffs by, what, a game and a half down the stretch, and they were in it the whole way. And then, you know, the, the postseason, ser- the championship series with Bowie, it was just more Yankees rehabs, which was a little bit strange for us. You know, we didn't really have, we didn't have a rehab at home all year. I think it's been sort of well chronicled how many injuries the Yankees have had this year. Um, you know, we had Clint Frazier with us in May when we were in Harrisburg, but the grand majority of rehabs landed in Tampa or Scranton Wilkesbury. It's just sort of how it shook out this year. And then you end up with the championship series, and it's Montgomery, Batances, Tarpley in a row in game one, and then Severino um, in game two. Um, and it was it was just sort of strange to sort of see all of these big leaguers come back and, and play for the Thunder this year. Um, but it, it really just sort of helped raise the level of play across the board. It took a lot of pressure off of the other guys on the pitching staff. Over the course of the postseason, off the top of my head, I can think of three guys that were active for the full time. Sean Semple, Graydon Bristow, and Will Carter active for, you know, all seven postseason games and didn't get in. And that's just sort of the nature of the beast when you have so many Yankees rehab for you and soak up innings in the postseason. You know, it was it was really a special run. I mean, you know, as you and I experienced in our four years together here, the roster is always changing in Trenton. And we had quite a few guys that were with us the whole year. Ben Ruda, Boy Park, Chris Giddens, Kyle Holder, Kellen Deglin ended up catching just about the full season with us. He came to us like on May 1st and earned the opportunity to be the everyday guy. 
thanks in part to a couple of injuries, but then Rashad Crawford, Brandon Wagner, you look up and down the roster and you just see a lot of guys that were here all year. So it was, it was really sort of unique to have a team that was together for most of the year and be able to finish the job together. It was, it was really a fun team to be a part of. You and I experienced it a couple of years back where the Thunder knocked off Binghamton, the Rumble Ponies, and they had Garrett Cooper and Clint Frazier on rehab, and both of those guys stepped out of the clubhouse and just sort of said, yeah, we'll let these guys celebrate. We're here, but this wasn't really our team. I thought that was an interesting take. I don't think the guys would have minded if Clint Frazier and Garrett Cooper were in the clubhouse that day celebrating with them, but where were uh, Severino, Montgomery, where were those guys as those celebrations were happening? You know, they, they, did, they did the same kind of thing, as you, as you know, when big leaguers finish off their rehab, you know, they go about their work to do their post-game, you know, whether it's arm care or, uh, or whatever. They went about their work, and I remember coming out of the, out of the celebration for the round one series at, after we defeated Redding and Severino was just fully dressed and moseying around the hallway waiting for a, a car service to take them out. And, you know, they just sort of steered clear of it. But I think the guys really appreciated having big league-level spreads waiting for them after the champagne showers, <laughs> um, which I think sort of made it a little bit more fun for them, particularly when we uh, when we finished the championship in Bowie, and there was a whole spread from P.F. Chang's, courtesy of Dallin Batances, following game four, and uh, that, sort of, that sort of helped make it easy for them, I think. But I'm guessing that it was still, uh, let's say, minor league caliber champagne being sprayed rather than uh, the, the higher shelf stuff? Yeah, that's my guess. Yeah. Um, I'm not really a champagne connoisseur. I haven't experienced a big league champagne celebration, so I don't know the difference. <laughs> John Mose, the voice of the Trenton Thunder, joining us here. You mentioned that trip through the postseason a couple of times, falling short against Akron, falling short against the Altoona Curve, and a little bit pulling back the curtain as broadcasters. We are day-to-day with the team. We obviously experience it from a, a different perspective, but riding the buses, traveling, seeing the guys every day. There is certainly a, a different emotional attachment to, to make a run like this and to be a small part of what's happening on the field. So, uh, you know, for you, how was it getting to, to make that trip through the playoffs and ultimately getting to make that championship call? It was a real treasure. I mean, it's, it's one of those memories that I think will stay with me for the rest of my life. For people that do what you and I do for a living, these are the kind of moments that you dream about, that you think about when you're on some of those long bus trips, you know, when we're shoving off to Portland, Maine between July 3rd and July 4th with an eight-hour bus ride in front of us. We're saying, well, there's hopefully there's a payoff down the road. Hopefully there's a moment that I can hold on to for the rest of my life that makes this journey worth it. And I think I really was feeling that sense in the immediacy when we put down the headset after the game where I sort of just had to take a moment to myself and say, I can't believe this really happened. I mean, three out of four years in the championship series for the Thunder, um, what felt like getting our hearts ripped out in 2016 and then doing so again in 17 were both times Trent is the best pitching staff in the league and then they get outpitched in the finals really sort of affects you because you sort of build an expectation for how you think it'll go in your head. And I I think over my years here in Trenton, it it sort of made it easier and it it felt a little bit more exciting for me when I see Zach Zayner celebrating with us in the clubhouse in 2019 when he was the one to strike out to end the 2017 championship series against Altoona and and let them finish off their sweep. 
say, you know what, that that is sort of unique. That is sort of nice to get a little bit of revenge, if you will, and, and finish it the way we want to. It was a pretty remarkable moment for Hoy Park and the Thunder in Game 3 in Bowie, where he had a straight steal of home, and it was against a left-handed pitcher. I don't believe you were on the call for that. I think Spencer was doing the play-by-play. So from where you sat, how did that moment transpire with a straight steal of home in a championship series? Well, so Alex Wells had been one of the best left-hand pitchers in our league all year, and he's not a guy that when you watch him initially, you say to yourself, this guy's really good. You know, he's about six foot tall. He's about 180 pounds. He throws 86 to 89 on his best day, but he really commands the ball well, and he was really dialed in. He had made one mistake early on, a solo home run to Chris Gittens, and then the Thunder accumulate three straight singles in the seventh inning in a 1-1 game, and we say, okay, well, here we go. Uh, Kyle Holder's coming up next. He's been reliable in this type of spot all year. Let's do it. We were sort of expecting the team, the Thunder, to take the lead there, and then on a 1-1 pitch, Kyle Holder gets hit on the hand. The home plate umpire says it hits off the knob of his bat. And there's an argument, and there's an extended conversation. Holder ends up striking out because the call doesn't change. And then Angel Aguilar comes up and strikes out. And, you know, that second out comes down, and the bases are still loaded, and it's still a tie game. And, you know, as you know, with minor league baseball playoffs, the fan base really locks in to the baseball, and they were loud. And you could really feel a playoff atmosphere built in that moment. And throughout that at-bat with Brian Navarretto, Park was – just sort of jumping around off of third base, trying to distract the pitcher, get him to balk. You know, it was clear that Wells looked like he'd be able to get out of the inning, but, you know, as a left-hand pitcher and with all of those fans up and standing and cheering, he was locked into the hitter. And Navarretto had fought off a couple of pitches in the at-bat, and Park had danced a couple times, and then finally just went. And, you know, he jumps in safely, uh, you know, obviously an amazing moment to watch. But we were talking about it the next day. If Wells didn't step off and then throw home as he did in that moment, if he had just thrown the pitch down the middle and Navarretto didn't swing, you know, to avoid hitting his teammate trying to steal home, it would have been a force out and it would have been strike three and the inning would have been over and the run would not have counted. So it was, like, sort of interesting to, like, break that all down afterward also. But Wells even said as much to media after the game. He was like, I never heard him. I never heard the calls to step off in the dugout. You know, the catcher at no point during the at-bat went out to the mound and said, hey, look, you got to look over your shoulder because Park is dancing because, you know, Hoy had sort of jumped around a little bit in the previous at-bats. But that moment right there, I think, sort of showed the resiliency of the club that we watched all year. And it was a close-knit group. So that was a really fun moment as part of the run. In all of that description, you mentioned the Chris Gittens home run earlier in the game. Now, he finishes the Eastern League's most valuable player. 115 games played, 23 homers, 77 runs batted in, a 280 average. When you talk about 23 home runs, and for myself as the Rail Riders broadcaster, we've been throwing around 20 home runs with ease this year in AAA, but that number is incredibly impressive in what was a rather down year for offense in the Eastern League. The Real Riders had four 20-homer guys on their roster this season alone, but 23 homers doesn't happen often in the Eastern League. It doesn't happen certainly often at Arm & Hammer Park where half of your games are being played. So what was the season like from your perspective with Chris Gittens in 
what was a redemption season for him in his second go around in Double A. Yeah, it was it was really sort of awesome to see because you know Chris is a great human being. He he is a lot of fun. He comes from Texas. He's got this sort of Texas drawl that sort of makes him so interesting to talk to in the first place. But last year sort of fought injury in a big way. He had a groin injury last year that knocked him out for about two weeks initially and then sort of re-aggravated it maybe about a week or ten days after coming off the injured list and missed pretty much the rest of the season, about two and a half months. So he really felt like he had some unfinished business here, and he really worked on his body in the offseason, slimmed down a little bit. He you know, told media on media day, he said, look, I spent the whole offseason building strength in my legs, in my core, so that I can play 140 games and, and be effective for the team. We know the power's in there. That was evident in his 60-game run in 2018 here. But I think the most impressive thing is the opposite field power. When Chris was in high school, he suffered a minor knee injury, and he just it took him a while to get confident in himself to pull the baseball in his swing. So he started to go to the opposite field all the time. And he has some of the most impressive right-handed opposite field power I've ever seen in my life. You know, so in our ballpark here in Trenton, we've got four levels of billboards that stacked about 32 feet high. And in right center field, between the video board and the batter's eye, against Harrisburg, I think it was against Harrisburg back in May, he hit a home run over the billboards in right center field. So when he cleared the wall, which is about 370 or so, or 380 or so up the alley, it was still 32 feet high in the air <laughs> uh, when it cleared those billboards. So... That just sort of illustrates the type of power that he has. And, you know, if he's ever able to make it to the New York Yankees, I am terrified of the amount of home runs he's going to hit to right field at Yankee Stadium because it is really legitimate power. And, of course, that short porch in right field will really play well to his game. He was always a patient hitter. I think that was pretty evident over the course of the year. Finished second in the league in walks. He just put it all together and and brought a, a good attitude every day. I think his slimmed-down physique sort of helped him be a better first baseman, and that was a theme that you heard when you discussed Chris with scouts over the course of the year, that they sort of noted how improved he was defensively, and it was just a really impressive campaign overall, and a guy that I'm certainly rooting for, and I think he has a bright future. What was the pitching staff like for the Trenton Thunder this season, just from a a bird's-eye view, game one through game 140 during the regular season? Well, early on, it was a little messy. Uh, opening weekend in Erie, Trenton lost 11-1 and 16-5 in their first and third games of the season. So the season-long numbers took a little while to sort of even out. But it was it was a group that had some really impressive power to it. Albert Abreu, I think, made just about every turn through the rotation this year, and I think that was an accomplishment for him because he sort of had some questions about arm injury in the past. He's dealt with some things over the last few years. Davey Garcia, I, you know, I, I'm sure you, your audience is plenty familiar with what he did this year. I mean, the 15 strikeout game to help us clinch the first half here in this ballpark was just unbelievable. And, you know, the bullpen was consistent all year long. There was only probably three or four games that I can think of off the top of my head where, you know, the team had a lead late and then gave it away. Brooks Kriske is a guy that really drew my attention this year. He missed a full year with recovering from Tommy John surgery. But it has come all the way back. This was his second full year. 
as a reliever. And, you know, he's what's University of Southern California, was a sixth-round selection. So he was a guy that I think the Yankees valued in the first place. But when he got to us, it was, it's 94 to 97 with a really good slider. The split finger came a long way this year. Daniel Alvarez at the back end of our bullpen, he slid into the closer role pretty much on day one, and he skipped high A Tampa. Alvy was about as consistent as they come over the course of the year, and just, you know, he turned 23 in the middle of the season, and he, you know, it was his first full year as a reliever, and, it, and there was nothing different about him. He was the same really good pitcher just about every time out, and I think that's a credit to our pitching coach, Tim Norton. Norty, I think, really helps guys prepare the right way. And he is obviously a very good teacher because over the course of the season, we had a number of guys add sliders to their repertoire. Nick Nelson did so. Davey Garcia did so when he was here. Abreu added a slider when he was here. Krisky actually added the split finger when he got to us, you know, sort of played around with it for a little while and then started working it into games by the time we got into early June. So I think his ability to sort of teach that pitch, which the numbers indicate is one of the most effective pitches you can throw in Major League Baseball, a good slider. I think his ability to teach that pitch really sort of helps take a couple of guys to the next level, particularly Nick Nelson. So for overall, it was a, just another really strong campaign on the mound. And been here six seasons now, and it seems like every year we're talking about one of the best pitching staffs in the league whenever Trenton takes the mound. At the end of the year, you had a flood of a couple of guys come in and, and help out as September call-ups trickle down to your level. And actually, even before then, Clark Schmidt made his double-A debut. He's a former first-round pick with Tommy John surgery as well, part of his backstory. So for Schmidt, it was three starts, 19 innings, 19 strikeouts, and only one walk. Was he as good as those numbers would have indicated? Yeah. Clark is extremely well-read when it comes to pitching. He is one of those guys that sort of understands who he is, and that sort of caught my attention in one of the first interviews he did. I think it was after his first start at home. You know, we as individuals that, you know, follow Yankees that are at the lower levels, we read about with Clark, you know, good fastball in the mid-90s, good curveball. And then, you know, one of the first interviews he does with one of our with one of our beat writers, he says, look, I know at the end of the day I'm a, I'm a sinker changeup guy. And, I, and, and sort of made my head turn. I said, oh, I didn't really realize that, but Clark is extremely consistent with his delivery. I think he puts together a good plan on the mound. It's as good as advertised. I mean, there, there's obvious first-round talent there. It's fastball 94 to 96, um, but he'll live with that sinker pretty consistently in the 93-ish range. A very good curveball. Changeup is good, too. I mean, it, it might be the best changeup that a right-hander has had over the course of the year with us. So Clark is really good, and I, and I think at this point he just needs more innings. Um, next year I think it's going to be a big year for him where it wouldn't be crazy for Clark to begin the season in Trenton, make about a dozen or so starts, and then work his way to AAA and be on the big league radar at some point in August next year. Right, and he's a guy that's 23 right now, but he'll be 24 at the start of next season, and even though he's lost a year pitching in the SEC, I mean, that's guys talk about how that's basically high A or double A ball to begin with, so... Yeah, certainly a guy that seems like he's knocking on the door. And before we let you go, is there anybody specifically we didn't ask about? Is there a moment in the season that we didn't get to that when you think about the 2019 Trenton Thunder is something that will certainly jump to mind? Yeah, I think there are two. You know, I think the path for Brady Lale, for him getting an opportunity, 
opportunity in the major leagues is a moment that I think will sort of stick with me when I reflect on 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I, we have seen Brady pitch every year since 2015 when he came up as a 20-year-old in double-A. And, you know, now he's working out of the bullpen and it is the best version of himself. I mean, he has, he was absolutely dominant as a reliever when he arrived in Trenton in, you know, about mid-late July. He got a bit of a late start to the year because of some injury stuff. Maybe, I guess he got to us in about June, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and then sort of shuttled back and forth a little bit before getting the big league opportunity in August. As, a, as I know you can attest to, Brady is one of the most down-to-earth and good people that I have come across in my time doing this. So that was like a really awesome moment to see Brady get an opportunity at the big league level with the team that drafted him and spent so much time and resource developing him as a person and as a pitcher. So that was really cool. And then I think the other one is Miguel Yahure. He's a guy that is way under the radar. Miguel came to us toward the end of the regular season. He's 21. And Yahure is another one of these guys who is incredibly smart in how he prepares for games. And I think at the end of the day, Yahure is a guy that is going to be another mid-rotation level starter coming out of this Yankees minor league system. He doesn't blow you away with big-time fastball velocity. He's 92 to 95, which you know I, I suppose is around average. These days. <laughs> yeah. He's got a very good curveball and a very good changeup, and he commands the heck out of both of them. I was really impressed with the couple starts we saw from him down the stretch of the season. And I think an indication of sort of his aptitude to learn is that at 21 years of age, he's doing all of his interviews in English. He interacts with teammates in English. And I think that is something that sort of illustrates to me that, that he is a willing learner and that he is always looking for ways to improve himself. You know, it's understandable for baseball players that come from Venezuela or the Dominican Republic to consistently interact with their teammates and their coaches in their native tongue. But I think Miguel sort of arriving at 21 and at AA, interacting with just about everybody in English was something that caught my attention and I think will serve him well down the road. A big, big thank you to John for being our guest here on the podcast this week. You can follow him on Twitter, his Twitter handle is at spelled with a Z. His name, John Moses, J-O-N-M-O-Z-E-S. Spelled with a Z is his Twitter handle, and you can keep up on Yankees offseason stuff. He's got his finger right on the pulse of the minor league system as well. So a great follow on Twitter. Make sure you do that. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Adam Giardino, G-I-A-R-D-I-N-O. We thank you for joining us again this week. Again, the next couple of weeks, we will have Nick Flamia of the Tampa Tarpons, Matt Dean of the Charleston River Dogs, and, well, then we'll improvise from there. But we'll continue getting you your weekly content on the Yankees minor league side of things, even as the Yankees season ultimately ends, perhaps with World Series championship number 28 in just a month or so. That is going to do it for us this week on the pod. Make sure you check out Pinstriped Alley as your main source of Yankee news as we continue to go through the 2019 American League postseason and, again, perhaps on to the World Series for the New York Yankees. I'm Adam Giardino. We will talk to you again next week on A Call Away.